Let us bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this tremendous privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for keeping the doors of this edifice open, Father. Thank you for making this evening a reality. We should never become familiar with such things, Father, for it's the little things that you provide by grace that really add up and just remind us of how much you love us, how much and how true it is that you never leave us or forsake us, Father. What a grace gift that wisdom is in our own souls. Thank you for giving us the time to relish it, to appreciate it, and to thank you for it. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us, and we pray for those that are still lost. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work, our Lord and Savior, to our benefit on that cross so many years ago. We just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, The Deceitfulness of Sin, Part 33. Um, Tuesday's uh, message was interesting because it brought out um, an interesting point regarding the fundamental difference between academic knowledge and supernatural wisdom. Um, I wrote a blog sort of on this, so what's coming out this week, um, not surprisingly, is consistent with this evening's message. But again, on Tuesday, the Spirit brought out this fundamental difference between academic knowledge and supernatural wisdom. I mean, let's face it, um, anybody can read the Bible. Uh, an unbeliever can read the Bible. An unbeliever might look at the wisdom books and be uh, sort of elated with them. Uh, maybe even try to borrow some of that wisdom. Uh, but there's a difference, as, uh, or according to the Bible, between just knowing something and having supernatural wisdom imparted to our souls. Case in point, Jesus spoke to the religious Jews. Go to John 5.39. John 5.39. Case in point. This came out on Tuesday, and it precipitated a bit of uh, looking into Scripture on my behalf, uh, as you'll see here in a moment. John 5.39, Jesus spoke to the religious Jews, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. It's one of the greatest things I've learned in my own spiritual walk or learned to appreciate over the years, especially the last few years, is just knowing and uh, knowing for sure that every dot in every T that's crossed uh, in the Bible really speaks about Jesus Christ, that the entire Bible points to him and his work uh, on the cross. And so these academics were looking and combing through Scripture, thinking that doing so and then, you know, contriving even uh, law upon law and regulation upon regulation, that that's what was leading them and would even guarantee eternal life to them. And Jesus blew that out of the water and said, the Scripture talks about me. If it's not me you see, you're missing the whole point. 
said, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. You see the point there, that you're willing to go to academia, but you're not willing to come to the man. You think that religion is the way to heaven? I say it's me, which is why he said, no one comes to the Father but through me. I am the way and the truth and the life. And it's not a religious exercise. That's why you don't have to be a Ph.D. or anything D after your name um, to be a wonderfully faithful servant of our Lord. He wants a relationship with us. Uh, that was one of the reasons I wrote that blog, why we had Sunday's encouraging lesson on the assurance of salvation. He wants us to know that we are his sheep. He wants us to know that he's got our backs. He wants us to know all of these things. We don't know these things. We don't have an assurance of these things. If all we have is memorized scripture or some to-dos that we've plucked out of uh, the Bible. And that's what he was really saying. The key distinction between an unbeliever, like those Jesus was addressing, and a believer is actually quite simple. Uh, but I'm going to lean on Holy Scripture to explain this. Go to Deuteronomy 29, verse 2. Deuteronomy 29, verse 2. So Jesus was talking to people who rejected him. And that means that they were un unregenerate. You can't reject uh, Jesus Christ because his spirit in that sense, is blasphemed, so says Holy Scripture. And so he was speaking to unbelievers. But yet they were probably, let's face it, specifically in Old Testament, uh, on Old Testament terms, uh, more well-read than any of us, or maybe possibly all of us put together. But yet they didn't know him. Deuteronomy 29.2. This is very encouraging for all of us, I think. Uh, and Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Yet, to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. And this is a great pattern as we're going to continue to see in Holy Scripture Again, to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. Up here on the board, the Lord has not given you. Remember, everything, excuse me, everything in this walk of ours is by grace. Every moment, everything that we enjoy, uh, every uh, part uh, of salvation or deliverance is by the grace of God. If he doesn't want you to have it, you're not going to have it. That's, that's shocking to some people. I really believe that's true, especially in the ranks of modern Christianity. They think that they can put God and make God a, a, a puppet. They think, like the Jews did of old, that if they do all these things as per holy writ, that God has to let them into heaven. No, he doesn't. He doesn't have to do anything. So again, the Lord God, we're going to develop this this evening. The Lord has not given you anything spiritually appraised, 1 Corinthians 2.14 in view, requires God's intervention by and through grace. Without this grace, we don't have eyes to see nor ears to hear. That's Deuteronomy 29.4. 
the truth, even though we may read it and comprehend it in a natural way. I mean, have, when's, if you keep reading your Bible, I don't know about you, but I've read the same um, passages over and over, and it isn't until he reveals it to me that I go, aha! <laughs> right? And it could be years after I've read it for the first time. I'm like, I've read that so many times, it never clicked. I wasn't ready. I don't know. But if he, hasn't, if he doesn't give you that sight, that insight into that part of Holy Scripture, then it's not yours yet. He has to give it to you. So again, this is the point. This is our launching pad this evening. And again, we're on the deceitfulness of sin because sin will tell you uh, this is not true. Sin will tell you that you can manufacture on your own. And again, the ultimate goal being your own salvation, your own deliverance. You can manufacture on your own the steps to heaven, the steps to wisdom, the steps to deliverance, etc., etc., the steps to things that only God can give. That's the deceitfulness of sin. But, you know, the Lord has not given you anything spiritually appraised, requires God's intervention by and through grace. Without this grace, we don't have eyes to see nor ears to hear the truth, even though we may read it and comprehend it in a natural way. Again, this is a very important point. Look at verse 4 again. Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. The prophet Ezekiel had to deal with this phenomenon also. Go to Ezekiel 12, verse 1. Ezekiel 12, 1. Ezekiel 12.1. Again, what's the difference? The question on the table is, what's the difference between an unbeliever who maybe reads the Bible and a believer who actually is given the grace to understand it? Ezekiel 12, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, you live in the midst of the rebellious house who have eyes to see but do not see, ears to hear but do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. In other words, their uh, spiritual sight is uh, fogged over, clouded, uh, incapable of seeing. Again, they have eyes to see but do not see, ears to hear but do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. Um, some of you might relate to that when you're in a tissy or you're having a little fit with God uh, and he's trying to get through to you and you don't hear a thing he's saying because you're too busy throwing a tantrum because you're a rebellious brat. Nobody? Mm-hmm. The issue, as we noted, again, up here on the board, it's our launching pad. The Lord has not given you Suppose you could say, if you're being an arrogant brat, he's not going to give it to you. Because you need to learn your lesson. Anything spiritually appraised requires God's intervention by and through grace. Without this grace, we don't have eyes to see nor ears to hear the truth, even though we may read it and comprehend it in a natural way. So what does that mean um, for us, this congregation who has been pelted 
with read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. It means you could be going through the exercise. You could be going home every morning. Okay, I'll read my Bible. And you read a few chapters and you get nothing out of it. But you, oh, you're reading your Bible because you don't, you're not even present. Your mind's wandering. You're thinking about, I don't know, this person or that person or what's on for the docket today, you know, this kind of a thing. Jesus is often quoted in the Bible as saying, up here on the board, this very thing. Matthew eleven fifteen, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He would say this after uh, parables often. Mark uh, 4, 9, and he was saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Oh, and lo and behold, look at Mark 4, 23. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. You see the theme? How about Luke 8, 8? Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great as he said these things. This is the parable of the parables, the closing of the parable of parables. He would call out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's why in unbelievers do not understand the parables of Jesus Christ. It's exactly why he designed them so. Jesus certainly isn't the only one who explained this phenomenon. Paul, being a disciple of Jesus, also referred back to Old Testament concepts to amplify them in the New Testament. As uh, Solomon would say, there's nothing new under the sun. That's another thing I hope you're seeing. I hope you're balancing your reading, not just New Testament, but old and new. And I hope that's what you're seeing. There's nothing new under the sun. Like I said, I don't know, maybe last week, for the first hundred or so years in the early church, all they had was the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't even translated yet. They had, so they had the old, this is the new church. This is the, you know, the body of Christ, the church, you know, the one everybody talks about nowadays, you know, this whole thing. For the first hundred years, they only had the Old Testament, and then by word of mouth, Jesus. It's amazing that there are churches in this day that call themselves Christians and say the Old Testament has nothing to do with us. Including the words of Jesus, by the way. Huh. Luke 8.8, 8, again, up here on the board. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, Jesus is not the only one to explain this phenomenon, Paul, being his disciple, also referred back to Old Testament concepts to amplify them in the New Testament. That's all he was doing. That's what I taught you when I taught you the gospel. All his letters are really either defending or reaffirming the gospel. He did not carry a different gospel around. He didn't have a different Jesus. As a matter of fact, he warned us against a different gospel. He warned us against a different Jesus. And he said, if anyone teaches those things, he is a cursed Maranatha. So again, Paul being a disciple of Jesus also referred back to Old Testament concepts to amplify them in the New Testament. Speaking of the hardness of Israel's heart, Paul wrote, go to Romans 11.8, Romans 11.8. Again, we're just driving home a principle that if the Lord hasn't given it to you, you don't have it. Romans 11, 8. Just as it is written, 
God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. So even Paul used the same language as Jesus and the folks, the old prophets in the Old Testament. Again, the point the Spirit's driving home here was a key point from Tuesday's message that there's a key distinction between an unbeliever and a believer's ability to possess godly wisdom. Again, the principle is up here on the board. We got this from Deuteronomy, our first passage. The Lord has not given you anything spiritually appraised requires God's intervention by and through grace. Without this grace, we don't have eyes to see nor ears to hear the truth, even though we may read it and comprehend it in a natural way. It's not as if uh, an unbeliever can't read the Bible and maybe even have a moral response to, say, the crucifixion of Jesus. I mean, unless you're a jackass, unless you're a cruel individual, if you, if you read about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, you're going to have a moral response to it. That doesn't mean you're a believer. Maybe they are even appalled by it, the fact that anyone would crucify another human being. However, there exists no spiritual understanding on the topic, only whatever fleshly moral objections they might have. We believers are called very differently. Go to John 4.24. John 4.24 We aren't called to only morally object to such things in our flesh. It's much more, I, I use the word visceral, I hope you know what that means, but it's much more um, unnerving um, and there's a much greater magnitude to a believer uh, when we view the cross than there is to an unbeliever who might just look at it as a, a murder case or something like that. A lot more at stake for us, a lot more of uh, hope based on it. We have eternal hope based on this cross and his resurrection. John 4.24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So here we have a pointer in Holy Scripture, excuse me, to the basics of spiritual living. The mandate is that we must worship in spirit and truth. So hopefully you see that. The mandate is that we must worship in spirit and truth. And I'm putting emphasis on these two words to make a point here, that both in spirit and in truth are obligatory. We must worship in spirit and truth. And these things are obligatory. And just as a side note, in spirit simply means that uh, superficial academia uh, reasoning doesn't cut it. Not just with, you know, human reasoning. Uh, We're talking about spiritual matters here. We are talking about the deep things of spiritual energy, power, and worship. And by the way, the spirit here is referring to the human spirit, not the Holy Spirit. The second one there. Although for all practical purposes, these two spirits coalesce with true worship. If we worship in this obligatory way, the word of truth creates results in us that are indeed 
undeniable up here on the board. I'll give you 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. And that would be uh, tantamount to Jesus saying, for those of you who have ears to hear, let them hear. Uh, it does work in those of us who believe. There's a supernatural plane, if you would, a transcendent uh, thing that happens by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. So we worship in spirit in truth, and that's obligatory. Sunday and Tuesday messages, as well as our most recent blog, which was titled Assurance of Salvation is by Grace Through Faith, gave us a wonderful reminder of something Peter wrote specifically about. I'll give you this up here on the board. I loved, loved, loved Sunday's message uh, in the, the Rewind on Tuesday. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Born again to a living hope. That's not a reality that an unbeliever is going to ever experience. They can read the Bible all they want but they're not going to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Up here on the board. By grace through faith, believers enjoy an abiding knowledge of their eternal life being a reality, that being a child of God means absolute salvation and guaranteed sanctification. That is from uh, Sunday's message Again, you don't get that reality imparted to your soul unless you do that obligatory thing. Anybody can read the Bible, even an unbeliever, but they will not have the assurance of their salvation unless it's real, unless God wants them to have that assurance of their salvation. That is why I've been so dogged, profound, if you would, from this pulpit, defending against uh, posers. I've been... Uh, People have thrown stones at me. Didn't even know it until recently. Um, from without, people have thrown stones. Not understanding precisely what the work was that was being done in this congregation actually was. There's a whole, there's a whole category of churchgoers um, that are false professors. A lot of the work that's been coming from this pulpit over the last couple of years has been addressed to that group. And God doesn't, I, if a person's in that group, I want them to know. <laughs> I want them to know, hey, you might have a problem because you might be in this group. Someone could have lied to you and Satan's not doing you any favors by blinding you. But God says he will tell you by means of his spirit if you are saved. And if you don't have that message loud and clear in your life, and I'm not talking about having a doubt here and there and having a bad moment. I'm talking about your abiding hope in Christ Jesus. If you don't have that sense of assurance, you might be in that group. And that is a problem. That's the whole point. And so that's the point that is also related to this evening's message by grace, through faith, believers enjoy an abiding knowledge of their eternal life being a reality. 
that being a child of God means absolute salvation and guaranteed sanctification. Living in this kind of a reality, we could call it an abiding joy. It doesn't mean you have a smile on your face. It means you have a joy set before you. There's a difference. Again, living in this kind of reality, we can call it an abiding joy, or as I've articulated it in the past, living in the gospel reality. Well, all of this requires one thing. Anybody want to take a guess? Humility. All of this requires one thing. Humility. Unfortunately, the same flesh in us that resisted salvation proper is still haunting us. And yes, that actually happened. That's why Jesus said you got to count the cost. you got to consider this thing. All that whole conversion process. We all had a flesh that was like, nope. <laughs> we all had a flesh that was dragging its feet, saying, I don't know about this guy. I think we're doing okay over here. I don't know about this surrendering thing. I kind of like being the sovereign in your life. I kind of like having domain over you. And so the same flesh in us that resisted salvation proper is still haunting us. And when God's will meets our flesh's will head on, we must be humbled. So goes the pattern from the very beginning. Here it is. Salvation and deliverance is always a function of humility, demanding the surrender of the self-willed human flesh. Let me say it again. Salvation and deliverance is always a function of humility demanding the surrender of the self-willed human flesh. This is why we read, go to Psalm 51.17. Go to Psalm 51.17. Whether you've ever thought about um, that that way, you should start thinking about that. That we have a will that is against God. Our flesh is in us still. It still makes its demands. It still uh, it influences our will, uh, if you would. It, as far as an, unre- uh, an unredeemed person is concerned, that's the only will they have. Psalm fifty-one, seventeen. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. That's what he's looking for in us. A broken and contrite heart is willing to kill the flesh. A broken and contrite heart is willing to kill the flesh. Or at least see it put to death. By the mighty hand of God. That's why we have passages like this one on the board. Colossians 3, 5, part A in the English Standard Version. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That's what humility looks like. Remember, I've I've taught that years ago. Humility is not our shocks. Humility has a certain aggression to it. It aggressively pursues the things of God. Knowing that it's by the power of God that it's even able to do that, but that's the nature of true humility. That aw shuck stuff is nothing more than covert arrogance. Read the book. But that's what true humility looks like. Die, flesh. 
Paul was, was humbling. He says, who's going to free me from this body of death? Who's going to free me from this situation? I'm sick and tired of it. That's what humility looks like. Kill this thing. Again, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, or stated differently, the flesh must be crucified along with its passions and desires. Holy Scripture tells us this as well. Galatians 5.24, up here on the board. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Humility chooses death as the appropriate response to the divine will of God being made manifest in a believer's soul. Let me say it again. This starts right with salvation proper. Humility chooses death as the appropriate response to the divine will of God being made manifest in a believer's soul, with the result being identification with Christ's death. Go to Mark 8.34. Mark 8.34. This is what true humility looks like. To hell with the flesh. Kill the flesh. Put that thing away. I hate my flesh. You? I mean, I hate it. I don't like... I'm not saying that it doesn't get the best of me and I don't follow some, you know, get sinful from time to time, what have you. But I hate it. I hate it. Anybody with me? Like, I mean, I just, it's the most annoying thing. It's like, I don't, you know, and I'm like, I don't, oh, right? It's like that. Nobody. I don't want it anymore because all it does is cause me problems. It seduces me away and then it causes me problems. And then my mind's off somewhere else where it shouldn't be. Instead of on Christ, instead of on the things above, instead of on things heavenly, I'm on earthly things. What did we just read? Put those earthly things away. Humility says, to death with the flesh. Mark 8.34. That's what true humility looks like. It's aggressive, you understand. It's not passive and all shucksy. Mark, that's, that's the world's version, which is by nature, arrogant. Mark 8.34, And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know what's funny about that? I was just reading this um, in my own personal studies. Jesus Christ is called in Holy Scripture a man of sorrows, filled with grief. Maybe, just maybe, as disciples, maybe, just maybe, we ought to set that as our expectations. I'm sorrow, I'm, I am sad all day, every day. All day, every day. I'm sad because there are, there are Christians out there lying to other Christians, some of them standing behind pulpits who aren't even ordained by God, I'm convinced of it, telling people that the highest thing you can achieve in Christianity is to smile all day. Listen to K-Love and smile all day, and you've made it. That's what true Christianity looks like. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, the man of sorrows, you know the one we're named after, was filled with grief all day, every day. I don't see him smiling all the time in the Bible. I don't see him going to rock concerts. I don't see him raising his hands doing this. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with rejoicing. 
not saying there's anything wrong with music, but hopefully you get my point. He's literally called capital M, man of capital S sorrows. <laughs> what makes you think as a disciple of Jesus Christ that your future on earth is any different? I'm not trying to, everybody's like, geez, what a bummer. You know, I'm not trying to say that. I'm honest to goodness. I'm not trying to say you just laugh. Stop laughing. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying you can't laugh. I'm saying our level set should be the same as Jesus. I'm not saying we're even that deep because we don't know everything he knew. I'm saying our level set should be such that it's at least oriented to the, the existence, the walk of Jesus Christ, our prototype. Is that fair to say? I mean, he, he's our, we're disciples of his. It seems a little off to me that if he was a man of sorrow, that his quote-unquote disciples, 2,000 years later, the highest and best for them is to be doing cartwheels out of church and going into church and, and, and you know, singing this and hallelujah and, you know, everything's about being happy. And, boy, you know, when he, when he, because he loves you so much, he's just going to bless your socks off. And, and if you get if you suffer less, you must be doing something good. Nope. Not at all. I don't see any of that in the Bible. I see if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you, if you're really one of mine. That's not a popular thing to say. It's one of the stones that has come in my way, unbeknownst to me, over the past couple of years. It's not a popular thing to say that. Because it's offensive. It makes people stumble. But what would you like me to do? You want me to lie to you and say that's true? Because it's not. It's not. We're going to suffer. If we're walking the way our Lord walked, you know, the man of sorrow, if we're walking as a disciple of him, what do you expect? He had a joy set before him, though, didn't he? Right? It was because he understood the end game. What's your end game? This life? Oh, please. Drop in the bucket. Poof, gone. Really, that's your end game? To maximize your so-called happiness now? You're going to lie, cheat, steal, do whatever it takes to get yours now? You don't even care who you screw over. Just get yours now. And when you get it, you can just wash that behind you and say, Jesus loves me because I'm blessed and I got exactly what I want. That's the lie that's coming from Christianity proper today. That's why I'm sorrow, filled with sorrow all the time. Because I'm so sad to see, even in the old, my own ranks, people are being lied to. And I don't know what Bible they're reading. And, I, and it makes me think that they're like the people who read Scripture and, 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 and thought the way the Pharisees thought, and, and they missed him. How do you miss him? People do. Okay, Mark 8, 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 
on Thursday, the Spirit purposely gave you something fundamental to think about. Uh, last Thursday, excuse me. Uh, and by now, most of you have, it might have been Tuesday, most of you by now have been given um, or seen the yarn, if you would. Actually, this is back to Thursday. That he has woven this past week. Uh, and it started with the blog, Assurance of Salvation by Grace Through Faith. And it's even stretched into this evening's message. We were given a quote from John Newton, a man who once converted, had to denounce a career in slave trading back in the 1700s. He became a pronounced abolitionist and a Bible teacher and expositor. And he said this up here on the board. This is from that blog. Obedience is the best test of sincerity. Feelings are various transient, and often deceitful. <laughs> Hasn't that been one of the overarching themes? I don't. Who cares what you feel is right? What does the Bible say? You see, that's what sin does. It, 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 it makes everything emotional. Let's just, let's just ride this out in emotionalism. Let's just do that same thing just on the other side. You know, in every way possible is the people who are singing Kumbaya every day, right? I'm up, I'm down, I'm this, I'm that. That's how I uh, experience God. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Feelings are various, transient, and often deceitful. But a broken, think of a broken heart, that's what God will never refuse, a contrite heart. A broken, humble spirit and an upright walk evidence the finger of God. Other things may be and are often counterfeited. Honestly, is it fair to say with most of you, definitely my situation, most Christians, most people I know that call themselves Christians are nothing more than emotional basket cases. They go to God when they need Him. They use Him. They throw Him away. They celebrate Him when it's right, when they feel in the mood but then they leave them behind. They have no basic relationship with Jesus Christ, nor do they really want one. Because you know what it would require? The very first word on the board. Obedience. But yet, here's what the Bible tells us over and over and over again. Obedience is the best test of sincerity. That's why on the other end of the... God, on, the, on, the on the tail end of, of, of the assurance of salvation... You know that you're saved because you want to obey. Because that's all the new creature wants to do. That's all it can do is obey. So it's not about how you feel. You might say it's how you obey. You can counterfeit feelings, but you can't counterfeit true obedience. That's a big deal. That's why I included that in the blog. And obviously, the Spirit wanted me to reiterate it live. Obedience is the best test of sincerity. Feelings are various, transient, and often deceitful. But a broken, humble spirit and an upright walk evidence the finger of God. Other things may be and are often counterfeited. And you know what? I couldn't agree more based on Holy Scripture. I was thinking about that. One of, the, 
one of the things the Bible teaches us is that the natural man loves to dote on physical pleasures. Well, doesn't that, isn't that what makes you feel good? And then because it makes you feel good, you turn around and attribute it as a blessing from God, you know, to make you happy. You know, because you're not following the man of sorrow, you're following some moron that stands behind a pulpit and says the pinnacle of Christianity is just you smiling all day. I don't see how that's even remotely in Holy Scripture. Not even close. Let me ask you a basic question. When you look, when you open up your Bible, Old or New Testament, geez, okay, just New Testament, do you see more um, of what's going on in Christianity today with all the smiling and the hoopla and all that stuff? Or do you see what I'm describing? You tell me. Read the red letters. Read Paul's letters. They were trying to kill Paul all the time. He said, I die daily. People try to kill me all the time. I'm going to go on a limb and say he wasn't smiling all the time. Why would that pos- How could that possibly be what Jesus was talking about when he mentioned persecution? In the act of voice, so to speak. How could that possibly be? Because it's not. What makes you think Christianity is what is on uh, album covers now? I, hate, I, mean, I know some of you don't hate me for saying this, but what mostly seems to come out in K-Love. Nothing wrong with K-Love, so don't get all weird with me. But you know what I'm getting at? Everything's all like, la, 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 la. Like, Ooh, so God loves us so much. Are we sure that what you're talking about is actually scriptural? Are we sure we haven't twisted it? We haven't twisted it somehow to say that we're maturing when we are suffering less and enjoying more? I think it's the other way around. I think the Bible says the more you know about Jesus Christ, the more you live for Him, the more you're going to suffer and the fewer smiles you're going to have. But you'll have a much greater thing, a thing called joy set before you, you see, that's completely backwards. Completely backwards. And I'm not trying to depress you on a Thursday evening. <laughs> I'm really not. I'm not trying to bring you down. I'm not trying to pick on Caleb. It's not about that. I'm trying to level set. Say, if Jesus Christ is the man of sorrow, what say you about your life as a supposed disciple of him? But one of the things the Bible teaches us is that the natural man, which means your flesh as well, loves to dote on physical pleasures, you know, like the lusts of the flesh. Oh, it makes me feel good to do this or that. I don't like to be filled with sorrow or grief. I don't like to face these things head on. So I'm going to counterfeit other aspects of my life so that I can feel good and then turn around and say it was God that blessed me out to feel good when I concocted and manufactured and premeditated the entire awfulness. That's just someone trying to escape. It's the same person who prays for relief, not for deliverance. You get what I'm saying? It's the same person who does that thing. So again, one of the things the Bible teaches us is that the natural man loves to dote on physical pleasures. For example, lusts of the flesh. 
so much so that there's no time left for actual spiritual walking. A la Galatians 5.25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. We might add this to the equation. Where our treasure is, natural man values physical things. For example, life over eternal things. Salvation. A believer in Christ values eternal life and the kingdom of God over all else. This is a repeat. Remember, we're coming out of the mind shaft now. It's mindset here. Do you know God by experiencing physical things? Do you? I mean, isn't that, isn't that what the, um, the average unbeliever that, doesn't know, that knows very little about Christianity would say Christianity is? You guys believe in this God, and you believe that if you believe in this God and do all these things, you get blessed out in time, including prosperity. The whole thing's a lie. They're ignorant. Like I said, they can't understand spiritually praised things. They could never understand a joy set before us. So what do they do? They whittle it down. They might read some of the really smart guys, like those, that Dawkins guy or Tyson, whatever heck his name is. They read the Bible through and they go, all right, I can make some sense of this. I'm pretty sure that what you guys are after, you think if you do these religious things, you're going to be blessed out. Mark Zuckerberg just came out and said he's no longer an atheist. He thinks religion's good, all of them. That's the founder of Facebook, by the way. All of them. Why? Because in his mind, his ridiculous, stupid mind, he thinks it's a formula. Do religion, good things happen. Do religion, you can celebrate Christmas. Do religion, you can celebrate Hanukkah. Do religion, you can celebrate whatever you want to celebrate. You see, you do this thing, and something good happens. We do the real good thing, and we get persecuted, and we suffer. And we associate with a man of sorrow. Hey, wait a minute, Marky Mark. I think you're wrong. So what if you're a bazillionaire? Read the blog, by the way. I'm not listening to you. You're a moron. Steve Jobs, moron. Bill Gates, moron. Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> These people are morons. And we hold them up. And then they try to tell us what Christianity is. And a bunch of morons follow their lead. So-called Christians. They try to tell us what it means to be blessed. Just because I'm smiling doesn't mean that I'm blessed to the max. It means I got a reprieve from grief. I hope you see what the Spirit's trying to say. That's the way the, ma the natural man thinks. That's why we can't reason with the natural man. Again, you're going to like this blog. That's why we can't reason with natural man. He doesn't think the way we think. He tries to impose on us what he thinks Christianity is. And some of us are so stupid and weak and predisposed to our fleshly lust that we accept it as truth. Well, Christianity must not be working for you then, huh? Because it seems to me, heck, since you started following Jesus Christ, you, you, you're poorer, you're even uglier. Because you're all worn out, it looks like to me. How's Christianity working out for you? Right? That would be the indictment on Christianity. See, what they don't understand is that we have a joy set before us. 
We have a living, abiding hope. They don't. Their hope is in themselves. You know enough about yourselves at this point, right? That's the last person you want to hope in. Because you're gross. No offense. I'm gross. We're weak. We're pathetic. We fail others. We fail ourselves. We certainly fail God. I don't want my hope to be based in me because I'll last about as long as... up oh, right there. If that was my hope, I'm doomed. If my hope is in me, I'm screwed. I don't want my hope to have to be in me. That's their plight, by the way. That's why they don't understand what I'm teaching. They will never understand what I'm teaching. They may even open the Bible like those people we started off with class with this evening, and they never see Jesus Christ. They never have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They don't understand a man of sorrow. They don't understand a joy set before a person. They don't understand eternal hope, abiding, living hope. They don't understand any of this stuff. I'll take that stuff any day of the week. Definitely for the rest of my life and for all of eternity. Amen? Amen. That's the point. But where our treasure is, natural man values physical things over eternal. A believer in Christ values eternal life and the kingdom of God over all else. In order to establish a good example, we observe... Again, we're coming out of the mind shaft. We observed King Solomon a few weeks back, and we uh, observed him, how he felt about wisdom up here on the board. 1 Kings 3.9. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? He didn't say, give me all the physical stuff, did he? He didn't say, give me all the stuff that's going to make me feel good. Give me more money. Give me more ladies. Give me more uh, rock concerts. Give me more jesters. Give me more gold. Give me more this. Give me more massages. Give me more hairdos. Give me more nail polishes. Give me more. I don't know if he'd be doing all this stuff. I'm trying to pick on all of you guys now. Give me more of this. Whatever it is you guys want more of and call blessings. And they're really just distractions. What did he go after? The wisest man. What did he go after? He wanted wisdom. Well, what should we be after? Wisdom. As we know from the biblical account, God not only grants Solomon his prayer for knowledge and wisdom, but as he often does, doesn't with his children even today, or he does, he added physical blessings to the spiritual. The Apostle John gives us the flip side. Go to 1 John 2.15. 1 John 2.15. I think it's funny because um, I guess apparently if you teach the truth, you're also accused of being a stumbling block. (laughs) I know, right? Go ahead, accuse away. That's a compliment. You know how I know that? Because John was a stumbling block. You know, the apostle of love. You see how love works? Everything's backwards. Modern Christianity, love would be to tolerate everything. Well, I'm gonna, well, let's read John and see what he has to say about so-called tolerance, about so-called not making anyone stumble. 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Any questions? Ow! Ow! 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. You know what? The world is passing away. And also, it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that that would make quite a few people stumble, even in Christianity. Because it would be an indictment on their lives. Because they're just, they've been deceived by sin itself into thinking that backwards paradigm that Oprah imposes on us, that these other morons impose on us, is actually true. That the more, the more money they make and the more prestige and the more smiling they have and everything to them is about, God's blessing me, I get to go on another vacation and I get some more money. And it's more money, more money. Right? Without spending your money. Right? Everything's about making, everything's about this paradigm. You know, oh, if I stick with Christ and I do this stuff, I get more stuff and I get happier and happier and I suffer less. That is literally the exact opposite. That's the great lie in Christianity today. The reality is, the more you, the more you learn, the more you suffer. Why do you think I said what I said? Every day I grieve. Why? Because I've read so much of the Bible, and by the grace of God, He's put so much of that wisdom in my soul. I'm not saying anything special about me. I'm just saying it's there to the point where I suffer. Just by looking at the world, it's achy. It hurts to see the estate of mankind and the antagonism and the arrogance. So then I get angry, you know. The arrogance, it's unbridled. It's so bad. You know what, though? Look at verse 17. The world is passing away. All of that stuff and all of its lusts passing away. Sayonara. And if everything you have is based on, including your self-esteem, including your hope, if everything you have is based on that thing and it's fading away, what does that say about those things about you? What does that say about your sense of security in life? It's based on something that is fleeting. What a horrible, horrible thing. The world is passing away and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So, here's where we ended a few Sundays ago. I don't know how many. Um, again, we're, remember, we're just coming out of the mind shaft. I'm trying to collect our thoughts along the way. We talked for a few lessons on the idea of conscience. Remember, deceitfulness of sin is our major theme. If you want to enjoy the blessings of possessing your own convictions born of a good conscience, you must begin by acquiring the word of truth. You must begin by acquiring the word of truth. True humility begins and ends with submission to the word of God. True humility begins and ends with submission to the word of God. Remember in Proverbs 4, 7, it said, The beginning of wisdom is what? Acquire wisdom. Hey, thanks for helping me out there. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. In other words, that should be your goal, just like Solomon, just like 
Jesus Christ, who grew in wisdom and knowledge. Your goal is to acquire wisdom. Not the things that are going to make you feel good. You understand? Not all those things that you've got lined up in your little pouch of dreams. You know, the ones, the, the ones you put in there when you were like, you know, 10, and you were playing house with your girlfriends, or king of the hill with your, your guy friends. You know, and everybody's pontificating about how wonderful life's going to be, and it's a big old lie. I'm not trying to be, it sounds like I'm being a really downer. I'm not saying it like that. I mean, the lie is a downer. That's what I meant to say. They're all lies. You didn't know any better. So anything that you gathered unto yourself back when you were a kid, throw it out. It's just a lie from the kingdom of darkness that has haunted some of you for decades. Throw it out. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. Now that's good advice. That's good advice. Um, I'm almost out of time. Let's press on real quickly. We're going to uh, read some final examples of the deceitfulness of sin in the Bible. A perfect example of an entire church assembly that was deceived by sin was the church of Laodicea that John had the right to go to Revelation 3.16. Revelation 3.16. And this is, I mean, we could certainly relate to uh, the church at Laodicea nowadays looks very much like our own in a way. Not this one, but the so-called churches, the so-called Christendom. Revelation 3.16 So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Okay, is that a kind of a stumbling block? I think so. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. I've actually had that conversation with people. Unbelievers, I don't need it. I don't need it. If you need that, if you need quote unquote religion to find happiness, well, you go right about it. And they give you that little pat on the back, right? Or on the top of the head. Oh, you need that? You're that weak and pathetic? You need religion? Oh, you go ahead and do that. I don't need it. I have need of nothing. I don't need any of that. Because let's face it, in, in their world, did I scare you? Some of you are like, ooh. In their world, Christianity is the lie. Religion, you get happy. Do religion, you get happy. Well, if you're already happy by world standards, this formula means nothing to you. That's why you don't you, you can't reason with them. Or if you're going to even try to have a conversation at any meaningful level, you have to go all the way down and say, wait a minute, before you go any further, you're presupposing that this is what I believe Christianity is for me. And I bet you if you told the average person, hey, Christianity to me, I learn about Christ, I suffer. I have a relationship with the man of sorrow. He says, you're going to be just like me. What do you think of that? They're going to be like, whoa, wait a minute. Whoa, I thought you went to church so you could feel good. No. 
I go to church so I can learn how to be edified. I seek wisdom. And the joy set before me is stupendous, is transcendent. But that doesn't mean I come out of church every Sunday with a smile on my face. It means I understand the sovereignty of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God. I understand what true love actually looks like. That love is sacrificial. That true love is born of a humble heart, coexists with humility. That's what I understand. And I don't see a whole lot of that anymore. And I grieve because of it. So, if you want any of that, come to church with me. <laughs> They'd be like, whoa. Anyways, verse 16. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That is the plight, if you would, of an unbeliever. They are insensible even. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I saw to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Up here on the board, I'll end with this because I'm out of time. Gold refined by fire most likely refers to righteousness and or faith. Allah, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. In other words, take in the word of God. That is Christ's good counsel. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us the word. Thank you for commanding it of us. And then by grace, giving us every provision necessary to fulfill that and be pleasing to you, Father. In the process, you're blessing us out in ways that matter, in ways that are eternal, in ways that this world cannot even fathom. Father, thank you for giving us the wisdom to know the difference. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.